Good morning. morning. If you have a copy of Scripture, you can open it up to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30 is where we'll be this morning. I had been a Christian for a little over a year when I began to experience a lot of internal angst concerning my salvation. I began to wonder whether or not my faith was strong enough to to get me through, all the way through life. I started to ask myself questions like, will some sin ultimately win the battle and lure me away from Christ? Could could that happen? Or, Or could I possibly grow incrementally more prideful like the Laodiceans only to have the Lord Jesus reject me in disgust like he warns them. Could this happen? Questions like these began to plague me and so with all of these swirling around in my head I began to meet with a pastor I was close with at the time. We would chat over coffee and uh, talk about the the state of my soul and He would attempt to reassure me in the faith. He would have me recall my conversion experience and and consider how different my life looked now. But that wasn't satisfying to me. And and one day, I remember, after we had met for a while, he he looked at me and he said, Trey, here's what you need to know. And, And my heart began to leap for joy. You know, I thought, well, well now, finally, I, I can know for sure that Christ is mine and I am His and I can enjoy Him forever. And so I, I listened. He said, here's what you need to know. Usually, the people who are asking the questions that you're asking are not the ones that need to worry. And I thought, well, that gives me no confidence at all. Usually? What does that even mean? And as I've reflected on this series of discussions that he and I had, I've realized that there was a measure of pastoral wisdom in some of the things that he was telling me. But these conversations all lacked one very important element that the situation really called for. That element was the authoritative certainty of the Word of God. We spent a lot of time a lot of time talking subjectively about my faith and my feelings and hardly any time discussing the objective truth that God had revealed in His Word. So that is what we're going to consider this morning, friends. What does the authoritative Word of God tell us about the eternal security of those in Christ? And and when we use that phrase, eternal security, what's meant by that is the belief that God, by His power, will keep and sustain the faith of all those who've been truly born again until physical death. And this is an important matter to consider. Respected pastor and teacher Don Whitney goes so far as to say that perhaps Satan's greatest endeavor is to convince Christians that they are not saved and non-Christians that they are. And I would agree with Dr. Whitney. So my aim this morning is to unfold the words of the Lord Jesus Himself in John chapter 10. Because His words there give encouragement to those in the faith that they will persevere until the end when the Lord takes them to heaven. But 
Another question inevitably arises when one considers the, the durability of their faith. And that question concerns the legitimacy of their faith. If legitimate faith endures till the end, how can I know that I have legitimate faith? Well, by God's grace, Jesus anticipated these questions, and we hear him addressing both of these in the passage before us. Here in John 10, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews who've asked him to make his identity plain to them. They're asking, are you the Messiah or not? And it's in this context that Jesus actually reveals much to us about the certainty of salvation for the believer. What we find in verses 27 through 30 is first, a description of life in Christ. And second, a declaration of security in Christ. A description of life in Christ and a declaration of security in Christ. So, with that in mind, let's look now at John chapter 10 and read it together, verses 27 through 30, and hear what the Spirit says to the church. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you, friends? Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. And Lord, we do ask now that as we come to consider it, that you would uh, be kind and gracious to us, Lord. Illuminate your word. Give light to it that we may understand. Father, I pray that you would keep me free from error. Lord, please help me to speak clearly and boldly from your word. And God, as we consider it, as we consider the the wonderful works that you have done in the Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that you would bring us to a place where we stand in awe and worship you all the more at your wonderful works. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing we find in our text this morning is a description of life in Christ. The first thing that Jesus addresses in our text is how to discern if you can legitimately say that you belong to Christ. He first tells the Pharisees, questioning him, that they do not belong to him. Then he provides a description of what a life lived in Christ looks like. He tells us three things that mark the life of those who've experienced the saving grace of God. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And in saying that his sheep hear his voice, Jesus is not here saying that all of those who would be saved literally hear him in an audible way. Okay, what he's referring to is the effectual call of the gospel message. That internal call that one experiences when the Spirit of God finally allows you to understand the gospel message that you may have heard a thousand times before. You see, there is this outward call of the gospel and an inward call. 
The outward call of the gospel occurs any time the gospel is proclaimed and there's a call for repentance. But you know as well as I do that not everyone responds to that call because it's only heard externally. Jesus' sheep, however, hear the words of Christ in the gospel calling them to repentance and belief and the Spirit enables them to understand. This, you see, is the inward call of the gospel. And upon receiving this message, Jesus' sheep are drawn by His irresistible grace to submit to Him. And it is to Him, the person of Jesus, that the sheep submit. And this is an important point in considering what it means to be a Christian, friends. We are not called so effectively away from our sin into a list of rules and doctrines. Now Jesus makes clear here that Upon hearing his voice, his sheep are drawn to a a relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. That term, know, does not mean to be cognizant of someone. In Jesus' divine omniscience, there is no one of whom he is not aware and most familiar with, you see. But there, there are some that Jesus has determined to have a special relationship with. You see, that's actually what the term means. Throughout the Bible, for God to know someone means for Him to set His affection on the individual. And Jesus says here that those He has called turn to Him to enjoy a living, loving relationship with Him as He has chosen to make them the object of His love and mercy and grace. This is what it means for Him to know His sheep. Yet, even though Jesus' sheep are called to more than a list of doctrines and commands, Jesus makes absolutely clear that those who belong to Him are called to no less than obedience to His commands. Again, look at verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here, Jesus is making clear that you cannot claim to identify with Him and be of Him if you are not living in submission to Him. And Jesus is consistently clear about this throughout the Gospels. Remember John chapter 14, where Jesus says it as simply as possible. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There there are those both inside and outside of the church that claim to know and love the Lord Jesus. And yet, for different reasons, they say that it's perfectly legitimate to compromise on elements of His teaching. Or, Or better yet, some try to pit what the Lord Jesus says in one place against what He says in other places. As though He were divided against Himself. And and they do this really just to escape what they find difficult about what He says. But this is not the disposition of Jesus' sheep. No, the sheep are are given, He says, to a comprehensive submission of themselves to Him. And that's because Jesus' sheep trust that He is indeed a good shepherd. They trust that He not only knows the way, 
but that he has revealed it to his sheep, never leaving them to rely on their own devices or reasoning to know the way for themselves. Friends, it's well known that sheep are stupid. (laughs) And without the guidance of their shepherd, they are utterly hopeless. In, In protection and provision in every possible way, the sheep are wholly reliant on the shepherd to guide them. And Jesus makes perfectly clear here that it's characteristic of true sheep to delight in the guidance of the shepherd rather than the self. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus gives us these three characteristics to describe what life in him is like, what what marks those that belong to him. And in just a moment... We're going to shift the rest of our time to considering the incredible encouragement of eternal security for those who belong to Christ. But I need to be clear about something at this point. That encouragement is only for those for whom these things are true of. Friends, I do not want to stand before God and be guilty of giving encouragement and consolation to the lost. So so please hear me when I say, if this is not true of you, what we've just read, if you haven't experienced the supernatural calling of God where you've come to believe the gospel truth, the truth that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, He came and lived a perfect life in fulfillment of God's law that you could not live, The truth that He died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for you. The truth that He rose three days later from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. If you've not believed that, if you've not known the loving fellowship of the Lord Jesus, as He affectionately knows His sheep, if you've not known what it is to delight in obedience to Him rather than sin, then please, friend, Take the opportunity today to pray that God would give you grace to submit to Jesus in repentance and faith. And then you too might know the incredible reality of eternal security. Eternal security for those in Christ is for certain a reality. And it's to that reality that we now turn to consider The second thing that Jesus gives us in the text is a declaration of security in Christ. After describing those who belong to him, Jesus now goes on to issue this declaration of security in him. And in speaking of those who belong to him, Jesus says, first, I give them eternal life. So the the very first consideration of security of those who believe is the origin of their salvation. Jesus says that He is the one who gives life. Contrary to some thought, Christians do not just decide to believe. It it takes a supernatural work of God to give faith and thus obtain eternal life. And Jesus saying this, it sets the framework, it sets the the paradigm, if you will, for thinking about the eternal security of the believer. 
He reminds us that the origin of your salvation is not with you. And if you were not responsible to secure salvation initially, friend, how could you be responsible to secure it eternally? And the answer is obviously that you're not. Yet the response comes from some. Well, just because Jesus is the one who gives life doesn't mean that someone couldn't enjoy it for a time and then do something to lose it, right? But that's contrary to what Jesus says about the life that he gives. Look again at verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Now, it doesn't take a seminary level education to figure this out, okay? If someone enjoys life for 25 years and then passes away, we call that a 25-year life, yes? That's how we qualify it. And Jesus here qualifies the kind of life that he gives so that no one can come behind him and say that Jesus ever intended for some to only enjoy a temporary spiritual life. No, he says that the life that he gives, the only kind of life that he gives, starts at the moment of conversion and stretches on into eternity future. And if there was any doubt about what's meant by eternal life, Jesus clears it up by saying of those that he gives life, and they will never perish. And of course, he's not saying that his sheep will never lose their physical lives. The Bible nowhere gives that idea. He's saying definitively and authoritatively that the spiritual life that he imparts will never be lost. Now you may ask, well, what if I have some, what if I have some, some philosophical questions about the world? You know, I mean, does that disqualify me for the faith? And if that's you, friend, listen, God is not afraid of your questions. He, he is the Lord of truth, after all. God is not afraid of your philosophical questions. And someone else struggling may ask, well, what if I've committed this kind of sin? I mean, surely, if I've committed this kind of sin, that would cost me my salvation. And if that's you, this morning, I would tell you that you are thinking too highly of your sin and too low of the blood of Christ. You see, the nature of the life that Jesus gives is eternal because that was the nature of the redemptive work that he accomplished. I'm going to say that again. The nature of the life that he gives is eternal because that was the nature of the redemptive work he accomplished. His work has, is indeed that thorough. His work is indeed that effective. He is not afraid of your questions. And there is no sin more potent, more powerful than the blood of Christ. He has accomplished all the necessary elements to bring eternal life. And that's why it's important to understand the doctrine of redemption, brothers and sisters, when you understand how thorough and how complete the work of Christ is, you understand how safe and secure you are in Him. It's why the author of Hebrews can say that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near 
to God through him. But, someone might say, what about those who listen to false teachers? You know, I've seen so many people, you might say, that, that were excelling in the faith. And then they began listening to some false teacher and they were led astray. Surely we can say that they've lost their salvation. It seems so real, so right. And then they've been led off into heresy. Can we say that they've lost their salvation? Well, no. No, because Jesus makes it very clear that not only is the life that he gives eternal in nature, but he continually protects this life. Look at the end of verse 28. Jesus says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No false teacher, you see, has the power to take from the Lord Jesus what he has purchased with his blood. And make no mistake about it, friends. Jesus is speaking about his ability to keep that which he has purchased with his blood. Acts 20, in verse 28, Paul says that Jesus obtained the church of God with his own blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul there speaking to believers says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And in our text this morning, you can hear it. You can hear the same thing as Jesus refers to his sheep in the possessive. He does not say that some sheep hear his voice, some random sheep hear his voice and respond. No, what does he say? My sheep hear my voice. And yet, still, some will ask, well, what, what then of those that fall away? What can we say about them? Well, it's simple, really. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Or to quote an old preacher, the faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Brothers and sisters, if you are united to Christ by faith this morning, Jesus has not only known you, but He has accomplished what's necessary to take possession of you. And you should take comfort in the fact that as the divine ruler of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, there is none that is able to take from Him what He calls Mine. And this is highlighted all the more as Jesus brings out the unity of the triune Godhead and the preservation of the saints. Look at verse 29 with me. Jesus continues in verse 29 saying, The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, this is not meant to draw a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. In fact, that would neglect the very next verse in which Jesus says, I and the Father are one. No, here, Jesus aims to emphasize the magnitude of the power that sustains the faith of Christians. He says, the Father is greater than all. He is sovereign. He is almighty. 
He's the creator of the universe and none can stay his hand, the Bible tells us. And you know what this verse tells us that he does with that hand? He preserves the eternal life of those he's given to the Son. The text says no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And the, the, unity, and the, the unity of the Father and the Son here it can't be lost. It, it, it's too important and it's too comforting for us to miss. Because there are some so-called scholars who would try to tell you that there's a difference between the Father and the Son when it comes to the application of redemption. That some would say that we can see in the Father an appetite for justice and righteousness, while we see in the Son an appetite for grace and mercy. But that is a lie from the pit of hell, friends. And I mean literally, it is a device of Satan to divide God against himself. You will not be able to justify that from an honest unbiased reading of Scripture. And here we have the Lord Jesus telling us Himself that He and the Father are one. And being one, they are totally united in their motivation, in their will, in their desire to save and sustain those who belong to Christ by faith. You know, as we contemplate the, the unity of the Trinity in the relationship to the eternal security of the believer, I'm reminded of John 15 and verse 9. Because it's there, if you'll remember, that Jesus, speaking to His disciples, He reveals another layer of the perseverance of the saints that I found to be incredibly comforting. In John 15, 9, Jesus says to His disciples, As the Father has loved Me, so have I loved you. So Jesus is saying there that the type of love that the members of the Trinity have for one another is categorically the same type of love that has been set on His followers. Now you may think, well, that certainly speaks to the love of God for those in the faith. But what does that have to do with the perseverance of those in the faith? And that's a good question. But if you meditate on that for any length of time on, on the nature of the love that the members of the Trinity have for one another, it doesn't take long to draw out the implications of that love being set on us. You just think with me. What type of love do the members of the Trinity have for each other? Well, it's the truest love, right? It's the purest love. It is, in fact, the origin of all love and communal fellowship. There would be no community, no fellowship, no affection if it were not for the origin of these things in the Trinity. Now think, when did the love that the members of the Trinity share together begin? Well, it didn't, of course. It has existed for all of eternity past. And so even though you have not existed from eternity past, remember what we read in Ephesians 1. That God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. You see, His love and commitment to you began in eternity past. Now consider this. Will the 
loving fellowship of the Trinity ever cease? And the answer, of course, is no. The love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for one another is as infinite and eternal as the existence of the Godhead itself. So also, our text tells us this morning that the life which Jesus gives to His sheep is eternal. And as a believer, there is nothing more comforting than that. In closing this morning, I'd like to share a story with you. In truth, it's kind of a confession as well, but that's okay. The confession is this. There is nothing in my life that has tested my trust in the sovereignty of God quite like having children. In a number of different ways, the Lord has humbled me by my lack of ability to control all the facets of my children's life. Chief among those being their safety. I'm what you might call uh, a helicopter dad when it comes to some things. Okay. And it's okay, really. I don't need like therapy after the sermon or anything like that. I'm working through it. It'll be okay. But one of the ways that this, is, uh, that this manifested a couple of years ago was in my son's desire to go to the park right uh, down the street from our house. Now, his going to the park actually wasn't really an issue. But there was a point at which he just got this independent streak about him. And now, he did not just want to be carried down to the park. Now, he wanted to walk to the park. And uh, being the helicopter dad that I am, I was not exactly wanting to do this. But that was okay. He, he was persuasive. And so I agreed uh, we could walk down to the park. But there was one condition. He had to hold my hand the whole way. So off we go to the park. And uh, in about 50 yards, he let go of my hand no less than 100 times. And, and so... I'd look at him, I'd grab his little face, and I'd say, Son, you have to hold Daddy's hand. You can't ever let go until we get to the park, until we get where we're going. You have to hold Daddy's hand. Because at this point now, I'm just trying to teach him how to stay close in you know, general public settings. So we go through that, and we, we get to the park. We have a big time and all that. Then it's time to go home. Same drill. But something dawned on me on the way home that, that made it all a little less stressful to me. And it was this. I realized that as much as I wanted him to learn to hold my hand, the reality was my hand was holding his and about three quarters of his arm too. And I realized that as long as I'm holding him until we get where we're going there's no real danger. And, and if something distracted him, you know, and, and lured him over to it, I could tug on him a little bit, you know. If some car came barreling down the street that really caused danger, I could yank him up and grab him to protect him. As long as I didn't let go of him until we got where we were going, there's no real danger. Brothers and sisters, what this text is telling us this morning is that just like a loving father, God will not let us go 
until we get where we're going. And there may be, there may be moments when it feels like all you can do to hold on to the Father's hand. But take comfort this morning in knowing that the truth is He's holding you more than you're holding Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are, again, grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for the clarity. We're grateful for the certainty that we can have in the completion of the work that Christ has done. Lord, we ask now that You would encourage us in this truth, strengthen our faith, that we may worship You all the more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.